0: Well, hi, welcome to our online services at Scotts Hill Baptist Church. My name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here and we're so glad that you were able to join us today. Our vision at Scotts Hill is joining God in his work of transforming lives. Now, the wonderful thing about God's work in our lives is we don't have to be in a specific place for his transformative work to take place. Whether we're gathering together or whether we're sequestered in our homes, God's work of transformation is always working. And during this time that we have been socially distancing ourselves from one another, statistics are telling us that there are four groups that are arising out of this. Those people are staying home while falling into one of these four categories. Number one, they're the hunks. Those are the ones who have spent this time working out and shaping their bodies. But not only are they the hunks, understand that they are the chunks. Those are the individuals who have staying home and maybe enlarging their bodies. And then there are those who are known as the monks. They're so secluded that they become introverted. And statistics tell us that even in this time, there's a fourth category, and it's the drunks, the people who are trying to medicate their pain through the midst of this. But the wonderful thing is, no matter where we are, we can trust God that he's going to keep doing a work of transforming our lives. Now, one of the great um, opportunities that I've had in my life is not only to be a husband, is to be a dad. And I've cherished the title of fatherhood. I loved being a dad and I love being a dad today. It still has great benefits. But one of the things I loved about being a dad in my kids growing up, well, were the nightly bedtime rituals. Now it wasn't because I was anxious that my kids would become unconscious until the next morning. I loved the nighttime ritual of bedtime stories because it gave me the opportunity to read to my children. And they loved for me to read. They would beg for me to read to them. Now, I would like to think it was because they were intellectually astute and they wanted to broaden their knowledge of things around them. But I've come really to understand that they wanted me to read because they were masters of delaying the inevitable sleep. But when we spent time reading, we read a number of things. But one of the greatest things that they enjoyed was what they affectionately called the bug-eyed Bible. And the reason they call it the bug-eyed Bible was because all the characters in the Bible had really big eyes. And we would read the typical Bible stories that you would find in children's Bibles. We'd read about Adam and Eve. We'd read about Joseph. We'd read about Moses. We'd read about Daniel and the lion's den. We'd read about David and Goliath. And then we would read the stories of the New Testament. And they loved the stories, not only about Jesus, but specifically, they loved the stories that Jesus told. And let's face it, Jesus was a master storyteller. He was many things, but one thing he was, he was an incredibly gifted speaker. And when he told stories, people were captivated by those stories. And people today are still captivated by the stories of Jesus. Now, all of those stories of Jesus are what we call parables. And my kids love to hear the parables of Jesus. The Good Samaritan, they love that story. The prodigal son, the lost sheep, the lost coins, the wonderful banquets. And we would spend time reading about these stories. Today, we're beginning a new series that we're calling The Parables of Jesus, and what we want to do for the next several weeks is take some of the most um, popular and significant parables that Jesus told, and let's discover incredibly deep truths from the lips of the Son of God. Now, before we jump into just talking about parables, we have to understand one important question, and that is what is a parable? What is a parable, anyway? Many people think that a parable is just a simple story that helps us to live a better life. When Jesus told parables, he was not opening up a can of chicken soup for the soul. He was not trying to give us some spiritual fortune cookie. Instead, when Jesus told parables, he was literally opening the windows of heaven and there were coming incredibly deep, heavenly truths to humanity. A parable is just a story about a real life situation or a real life person going through some difficulties or conflicts and drawing from those things, moral or spiritual truths. Now let's put it real simple. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly truth. It's is simply an earthly story with a heavenly truth. The word parable in the Greek is the word parabola, and it means to come alongside. So when Jesus told a parable, he was telling an earthly story with a heavenly truth coming alongside it to open up the hearts and the minds of people. That's what a parable is. It's very simple. And a parable is different than a fable. A fable might be a story about unrealistic things like animals speaking. A parable is always something that can really happen in real life. And a parable is not like an allegory either. In an allegorical story such as the Chronicles of Nornia by C.S. Lewis or Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, every detail has some specific meaning. But in a parable, it's very simple. And most parables only have one meaning with multiple subpoints that support that meaning. So a parable is just simple earthly story with a heavenly truth. Now, the other question we have to ask is this. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Some people say he spoke in parables because he was dealing with provincial people and simple minds. And so he told simple stories that were accessible and made people feel comfortable. He used very familiar settings and things of nature that they would have understood. And while Jesus was a master of taking the complex and making it simple, he did not tell parables just because of simple-minded people. There are two reasons Jesus used parables. Number one, parables revealed truth for eager souls who demonstrate a childlike faith. Some of those people that he spoke parables to were people who were actually seeking the kingdom of God. And in that parable, truth was revealed to them. But there's a second reason Jesus told parables. A parable conceals truth for the self-righteous or the self-satisfied people who reject Christ. The Pharisees rejected Christ in his ministry. And Jesus would tell parables because truth would be concealed from their eyes. And when you look at the parables that Jesus tells in the New Testament, in the gospels, there are about 40 different parables that we can discern. And of those 40 parables, they fall into one of five categories. they are kingdom parables, Salvation parables, wisdom, folly parables, Christian life parables, and judgment parables. Of all the parables, you'll find them falling into one of these five categories. And for the next several weeks, the parables that we look at will be coming from one of these five categories. Now, today we're going to begin where Jesus began. And Jesus began with the kingdom parables. And the kingdom parables are all found in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, your devices, your phones, whatever you have, turn to Matthew chapter 13. Here Jesus mentions seven kingdom parables in this one chapter. Now what are we talking about when we say a kingdom parable? He's talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as Matthew describes it. And of this, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're not talking about a certain location, We're talking about something that's invisible but has visible effects. What is the kingdom of God? Before we could talk about kingdom parables, we need to understand what the kingdom of God is. Very simply, the kingdom of God is the reign and the rule of God in the heart of an individual. You'll remember in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. And he says to them, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is the reign and the rule of God in the heart of an individual on earth, just as the reign and rule of God is in heaven. And so we talk about the kingdom of God, we're always talking about the reign and the rule of God in the hearts of people's lives. And in Matthew chapter 13, the seven parables, each one is connected to the kingdom. The parable of the sower, the first one, is the word of the kingdom. The parable of the weeds, the second one, is the rejection of the kingdom. Then you have the parable of the mustard seed and leaven. That's talking about the significant growth of the kingdom. Then you have the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. That speaks about the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Then you have the parable of the net. That's talking about the significance of the kingdom in the world. Today, we're going to talk about those two parables that are connected, the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. And these parables both mean the same. They're dovetailed into each other. And in this parable, we find incredible truth about the entrance into the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me right now? Father, we thank you for the words that you have shared with us in scripture. We thank you for these stories that Jesus told. And today, as we unfold two of these stories, Father, would you open our eyes to our hearts to understand the truth. Father, for those who are believers, I pray you would challenge us today with the truth of the words that we hear. And Father, for those who are not believers, I pray that they would stay with this message and they would hear the wonderful news of the kingdom of God. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at the two parables. First, we discover the parable of the hidden treasure. And as Jesus tells the story, here's what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Now, when Jesus tells this story, the people would have immediately understood what he was talking about. This was a culture where people didn't have banks and safety deposit boxes, but they would often take their treasures and literally bury them in the ground, and they would hide them away for safekeeping. Now, this was very common in this day. But unfortunately, what would happen many times is the person who buried the treasure might die, and he didn't tell anybody where the treasure was. So this treasure stays hidden, and some other person comes in the future and owns the land. Or sometimes the people of Israel were taken off into captivity, and all of their wealth was buried on their property, and no one knew where it was, and they died in another country, and that land was eventually sold to someone else. And so they knew what he was talking about there with this buried treasure. Now, some people are embarrassed by this this parable because they suggest that Jesus is saying that this man is doing something unethical. Now, we don't know anything about the man. We don't know anything about the landowner. Most likely, the man was hired out to plow the ground or to till the ground or to do some kind of digging. But as he's digging or working in the ground, he discovers this treasure. And some people say that it was unethical that he found it and covered it up. But according to rabbinical law in those days, if a man found treasure or coins or anything valuable, he could claim it as his own. And there were certain things that he had to do. This man knew what he had to do. He was not unethical. What did he do? He buried it back in the ground. He went and sold everything that he had, bought the property so the treasure could be his. Let me tell you what would be unethical. If he would have dug the treasure box up and left with it. That would have been unethical. Or if he would have taken some of the treasure out to buy the field and then come back and own the rest of it, that would have been unethical. The man selling the land obviously didn't know the treasure was there, so it was not rightly his. And so the man sold everything he had to buy that. Why? Because it was incredibly valuable. Now let's look at the second parable that Jesus tells. The parable of the pearl of great price. He begins, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and he bought it. It's a similar parable. This man is a merchant. He deals in wholesale of goods that he purchases and resells. Obviously, his specialty was that of pearls. Buying pearls in that day would be much like investing in diamonds today. And so what does he do? This man went from town to town. He went from coastal city to coastal city, from harbor to harbor, from merchant to merchant. And what was he doing? He was searching for great pearls. And in his search, he located something that no one else knew, a pearl of great price. And he told it to no one. He left that place, kept that locale secret, went home, sold everything he had, and bought that pearl. Why? Because it was more valuable than anything he could ever have. What do these two parables have in common? There's one major lesson that flows from both of these parables, and it's the kingdom of God is gloriously costly. It is gloriously costly. It is a glorious thing when we think of the kingdom of God, but it is a costly thing as we talk about the kingdom of God. And from this main point in this parable, we find five specific truths that you and I need to understand about the kingdom of God in our lives and in our world. I want to give you those five things as quickly as I can. Number one, the kingdom of God is priceless in value. It is incredibly priceless. There's nothing that compares to the kingdom of God. The man in the field finds this this treasure. He covers it up and hides it away so he can go and get his stuff together to buy it, hoping no one else will find it. The merchant finds this pearl and tells no one of its location, goes home, sells everything he can, and hopes that he can buy it before someone else finds it. I know something of this, and I've learned of this just shopping with my wife. Yeah, some of you, a lot of you do this very same thing. This past fall, I went shopping with Chris, and she was looking for a jacket for the winter and we came to this one store and she found this jacket that she really liked but she couldn't make her mind up on whether she wanted the jacket or not. Why? Well because like most women they want to be able to go to every single store in Wilmington before they can make up their mind on one object. So what did she do? She took that jacket and she hid it among other jackets on another rack of a different brand and a lower price. And so she hid it away so that she can hope she can come back and nobody would have bought that jacket. To be honest with you, I don't even know if we returned there and bought that one. But the kingdom of heaven is incomprehensibly valuable. I love the way Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. He says, it is undefiled. It is unfading. It is incorruptible. It is eternal. It is in heaven waiting for us. The value of the kingdom of God is buried in this poverty-stricken world. And in this poverty-stricken world, it lies there and people walk right past it. The kingdom of God is sufficient to take the most poorest person, the biggest sinner, the one who is blind, the one who is wretched, the one who is corrupted, and turn them into children of God. The kingdom of God is the salvation that God gives. It is the peace and the joy. It is the adoption as sons and daughters. It is the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. It is eternal life under the smile of a heavenly father and in the presence of the son of God. The kingdom of God is so much more valuable than anything in this world. In fact, all the riches of the world are but trinkets compared to the kingdom of God. And the trinkets of the world have a shelf life. But the kingdom of God has no shelf life. It is incredibly valuable. It is priceless in its value. The first thing that we see is that the kingdoms of men... Do not compare to the glorious nature of the kingdom of God. Here's the second truth that Jesus teaches. The kingdom of God is not superficially visible. In other words, it's not easily detected. The kingdom of God is not something that people just so easily see and understand. The man in the field, many people walk through that field. No doubt many people worked and plowed in that field. But this man found it, uncovered it, covered it back up and bought the land legally. The same with the merchant. He discovered the pearl of great price by hours and hours of investigation and traveling and going from one place to the next. Other people walked right past that pearl of great price, but he was able to see it. The point is this, that the kingdom of God is not so easily seen. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 20, that the kingdom does not come with great fanfare. People are not readily looking for it. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that people walk right past the kingdom of God because these things are spiritually discerned. Jesus even said in John 3, 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says to him that one can only enter the kingdom of God if he's been born again. And why is it that people are not able to so easily see the kingdom of God? Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they do not see the glory of the gospel in the Son of God takes the work of the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes, to be able to see the value of the kingdom. Otherwise, we will walk right past it. We will hear the gospel over and over again. But when the Holy Spirit begins to draw us to himself and the Holy Spirit begins to give us insight and he begins to convict our hearts and our minds, then suddenly the kingdom becomes visible. I remember in my own life, I grew up listening to the gospel most all of my life. I've known all the stories of Jesus. I knew about the Bible, and it, I've heard the gospel multiple times. But it wasn't until 1977, March, on a Thursday night, that my eyes were open to the gospel. I was invited to a church and there that evening I heard the gospel unlike I've ever heard it before and the gospel exploded in my heart and in my mind and suddenly I can see myself I could see the righteousness of Christ I can see the judgment that awaited and for the first time even though I had walked by it countless times it exploded in my life and became real. Many of you feel the same and you can remember the same thing. It's not superficially visible. It's a work of the Holy Spirit who brings us to the point of understanding the nature of the kingdom. Here's the third thing that we see. The kingdom of God must be personally appropriated. It must be personally appropriated. That means I must personally do something with it. I must personally commit to it. That's what happened with each of these men in these stories. We find the man in the field was committed to buying the field and making that treasure his own. It was going to cost him everything, but he was committed to it. The merchant was the same. He was committed to the pearl of great price. He might be questioned by people, why would you sell everything for one item? he was committed to it and they were personally appropriating themselves to it you see the truth is this the man in the field could not inherit that riches the merchant did not have any kind of entitlement to the pearl and jesus is speaking to a group of people who believe that salvation can be inherited or it was entitled many of the people listening to him were people of Israel. And they thought because they were of the nation of Israel, they automatically were of the kingdom of God. And the point is this. Salvation is not inherited. It's not passed down from parents to children or grandparents to grandchildren. It must be personally appropriated in the life of every individual. My first pastorate was a small country church in Florida. And all the men, most of the men in that church were peanut farmers. And that's what they did for a living. One day, a farmer came to me and he said, My son is of the age where it's time for him to be baptized. I said, Did your son surrender his life to Christ and accept Christ as Lord? He said, Oh, no, 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 no. He said, You see, it was like this He's grown up in church his whole life. My, my dad grew up in church his whole life, but when he was the age of 16, he was baptized. I grew up in church my whole life. When I was the age of 16, I was baptized. And my son has grown up in this church, and now he's 16. It's time for him to be baptized. That's what I call Southern Fried Christianity. It just simply passes on from generation to generation. And I helped him to understand that baptism isn't the issue. A surrender to Jesus Christ is an issue, and that your son cannot live on borrowed faith. That's the point of this, that it must be personally appropriated. This faith must be your own faith. I want to tell you there are a lot of people in the church today that think because they grew up in a certain church or they've been in a connect group or a Sunday school class, and because maybe they are a teacher or maybe a deacon or even an elder in the church, many people think that just because of all those things, they automatically have salvation. That's borrowed faith. And borrowed faith is the worst kind of faith. When you borrow something from someone, it's not yours. In fact, when you borrow something from someone, you're expected to give it back, right? Now, if you don't give it back, you've stolen it. (laughs) And some of us have some things we've stolen, don't we? But the reality is this. Borrowed faith is faith in faith. That's all. Authentic faith is faith in Jesus Christ. It is a personal love for him and a personal surrender to him as Lord. It is an act of where I put all of my trust in him. And this is not the faith of anyone else. It is my faith that's personally appropriated and brings me into the kingdom of God. One of the things I love about Scotts Hill and our family ministry is we're committed to moving children from a borrowed faith To an authentic faith, students and college students alike, because we cannot live on borrowed faith. It must be personally appropriated in a relationship that I personally have with the Son of God. Here's the fourth principle the kingdom of God may be entered by different approaches. The kingdom of God may be entered by different approaches. We find so many similarities in this passage, so many, but there's One distinct difference between the two of them. Here's what it is. The man in the field was not looking for the kingdom of God. He was not in search for it. He was going about his everyday life and he providentially stumbled upon it. And when he stumbled upon it, he discovered the richness that was at his feet. And so he was not one who was out searching for the kingdom of God. Many of you know what I'm talking about because you neither were out searching for the kingdom of God. You were going about your daily life. Then all of a sudden you heard something. Maybe you heard a message that changed your thinking. Maybe someone came and shared the love of Jesus with you and it changed your thinking. Maybe, maybe you listened to a song and that song changed your heart. Maybe something took place and you listened and experienced something that you stumbled upon and then you experienced the kingdom of God. We see this through the pages of scripture. The apostle Paul did that. He was on his way to Damascus. As far as he was concerned, he was in the kingdom. And then Jesus just uh, um, shows up in the most dramatic fashion and Paul stumbles into the kingdom of God. Providentially, he did so. The woman at the well did the same. She came to the well at noon, and she discovered the Savior. She was not looking for the kingdom. I did the same thing. When I went to church that Thursday night in 1977, I wasn't looking for Jesus. I was looking for a date. And when I left there, fortunately, I had both. But the reality is this, is that many people think that they stumbled into the kingdom where actually the kingdom found them. Some of you are like that. But then the merchant is different. You see, he didn't stumble into the kingdom. He was looking for the kingdom. He was studying. He was consumed by finding it. And there are many people who are looking for truth in their life, and they've gone from religion to religion, from maybe one philosophy of life to another philosophy of life, maybe one lifestyle to another lifestyle, and they're empty in all of that. But even in their search, they can find the truth. And even those who may stumble into it or who are searching for it. The Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, where Philip met him, he was searching for truth. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, a Roman centurion, was searching for it and found it. And many of you have done the same thing. But here's the last point the kingdom of God comes at a high cost, it is glorious but it is costly. It comes at a very high cost. What do each of these men do? They each go home, sell everything that they have, and they come and buy the field or they buy the pearl. Why? Because those things were exceedingly more valuable than anything they would ever own. And Jesus is not saying here that we buy our way into the kingdom. We could never do that. All the riches of the world could not buy the kingdom of God. You can't work your way into the kingdom. There's no amount of work that you can do to earn a place. It's all by grace. But here's what he's saying, that the kingdom of God requires total surrender and total sacrifice. And the mark of total surrender in a believer's life is a transformed heart. The mark of total surrender in a believer's life is a total love for the Lord Jesus. It doesn't mean that we're immediately going to be able to overcome every sin and failure in our lives. That's called sanctification. We work the rest of our lives through that process. But we should have a deep love and appreciation for the things of Christ that we surrender everything. We surrender We surrender our goals, our ambitions, our emotions. We surrender our careers. We surrender our finances. We surrender our lives. We come to the Lord Jesus with open hands and empty hands so that we can walk away with the fullness of the kingdom. It's interesting that Jesus made it more difficult for people to say yes to him than to say no to him. Why? Because there's an incredible cost of the kingdom. And the mark of a mature believer is that everything they have is his because everything they have pales in comparison to what's of the kingdom. Now, every parable is meant to lead to questions. Believers, let me leave you with two questions today. And these questions should re- resonate deeply within our hearts. Matter of fact, they should convict every one of us. As I dealt with this this week, I was so convicted in my own heart about what I'm seeking. Question number one. Is pursuing the kingdom of God the most valued passion of your life, or do you find yourself pursuing the kingdoms of the world? Is the kingdom of God the most valued passion? Is the greatest desire of my heart is that the Lord Jesus would have reign and rule over everything in my life? There's a real easy way to know whether that's true or not. Where do I invest my money? In the kingdoms of the world or in the kingdom of God? Where do I invest my time? In the kingdoms of the world or the kingdom of God? Where do I invest my interest? What am I giving myself to with my eyes? Am I watching things on television that reflect the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the world? Is my entertainment driven by the things of the world or by the joy of being in Christ? You see, where my 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 time goes is where my passion is and the question is for each of us what are we pursuing and in these days with this COVID 19 and everything you know what i'm seeing people do protecting this kingdom of the world they're protecting their investments, they're protecting all of these things. Now I'm not saying we should not be wise in these things, but the thing is, we're giving ourselves to something that John says in, in second and in first John chapter two, he says, These things of the world are passing away, but the kingdom of God is forever. Am I living according and for the rule and the reign of Jesus in my life? I know that I fall miserably short in these sometimes and this parable drives us to ask this question whose kingdom is most valuable and whose kingdom am I living for every day when you wake up you have a kingdom conflict in you your kingdom or God's kingdom here's the second question are you allowing God to use you to be a treasure and a pearl of great value by the way you live your life. What do I mean by that? Many times you're the only gospel that people will see, and you carry with you the gospel. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We are the jars of clay. The treasure is the gospel, and we have the gospel in this jar of clay and this treasure is what the world needs to see and as you and I are living for the kingdom the overflow of kingdom life is always going to be the visibility of the treasure of the kingdom of God and people will see that you will run into people you have an opportunity to share that treasure with them you have opportunity to share the pearl of great price who is Jesus and in these times We ought to be living in such a way that what people see is the treasure of the gospel and the value of Jesus in our world. Oh, I pray that as we go through this week, that God's kingdom would have the priority and that we would live in such a way that people would see the treasure of the gospel and the person of Christ in us. If you're listening to this and you're not a believer, you may have stumbled onto our website today, but that's by God's providence. Or you may be looking and been watching for some time and maybe you've been searching for truth. My friends, let me tell you, the treasure is Jesus. The answer for your life is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. You see, He took your punishment by dying on the cross. He took your penalty by becoming sin so that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He died and was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead and is alive today. And he loves sinners. He died for sinners like me, like everyone watching this. And I want to encourage you today that you would personally appropriate your faith in jesus christ that you would surrender your life to him as lord and savior and that you would come to know that the kingdom of god is glorious but it is also costly because you must surrender everything and if you're willing to do that then you will experience the kingdom of god in you The kingdom of God is gloriously costly. But the kingdom of God is more valuable than anything in this world. Join me as we pray. Father, we thank you for truth. Thank you for your word. We ask, Father, that you would use it in our lives. Transform us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.